0: It's September 1969. In the North Sea, a drilling rig, the Ocean Viking, sits alone in Norwegian waters, 200 miles from land. For seven years, the Ocean Viking has been searching, in vain, for oil. And its pursuit, it seems, is nearly over. Years earlier, evidence of oil had been found in these waters, but an army of rigs, including the Viking, turned up nothing after 32 wells were drilled. The owner of the rigs, Phillips Petroleum, is ending this costly and seemingly foolish endeavor. Phillips pulls its rigs from the sea, but because of contractual obligations, the American oil company leaves one rig, the Ocean Viking, in the waters for one final attempt at finding black gold. And one day in late September, there's a startling discovery, a gas pocket at 4,500 feet. And not just gas, but oil. So much of it that the readings rise beyond the rig's scales. It will take weeks, months of more drilling before the magnitude of the discovery is understood. On December 23rd, a Philips executive calls Norway's Minister of Industry and tells him, I think we have an oil field. The following day, the news is announced to the world. For the people of Norway, it is a Christmas gift. Practically overnight, Norway has become a major oil economy. The discovery will lead to the creation of a financial innovation, an astonishing pool of money, an oil fund, the most formidable oil fund in the world. Today, that fund is known as the Government Pension Fund of Norway with more than $1.3 trillion in assets, it holds the world's largest stock portfolio. And as for every other sovereign wealth fund in the world, from Kuwait to Singapore, a future filled with tantalizing possibilities lies ahead. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to understand the history of how we got here. I'm Paddy Hirsch, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGM that untangles the origins, present-day opportunities, and future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, with the help of PGM's Stephen Oxley and Philip Sinn, as well as sovereign wealth expert Angela Kumain, I'll be telling the story of how sovereign wealth funds emerged and developed, and the formidable opportunities that await them today. These government-owned and controlled pots of wealth are not, of course, new to the scene. They first rose to prominence in the 1970s, most notably as a way for Arab states to invest their oil money. They became big players in the global markets with the rise of oil prices in the 2000s. And today, with nearly $8 trillion under management, sovereign wealth funds wield immense and increasing power and influence. Their impact extends well beyond the oil-rich Middle East, Sovereign Wealth Funds are supporting and shaping public policy goals across the world. They have matured into ambitious and sophisticated investors, while navigating a changing and uncertain landscape in an age of low interest rates and a global pandemic. Sovereign Wealth Funds are discovering a new world replete with opportunities. They're not just investing in the future, they're also shaping it. Governments have long looked for ways to invest surplus cash— And sovereign funds have offered a way to deploy that capital to generate income. But when you look at the actual purpose of sovereign wealth funds in action, things get a bit more interesting and highly relevant. Last year, sovereign wealth fund direct investments reached a five-year high. Publicly disclosed direct investments nearly doubled to over $65 billion, up from $35 billion in 2019. One big factor in that uptick? COVID. Many sovereign wealth funds were called on to support their government's responses to the pandemic. Moments like this are what sovereign wealth funds are made for.
1: Funds that are used in times of crisis, perhaps as a currency crisis in a country, or it goes through an economically lean time if you've got a store of capital that you can spend to uh, relieve an economic crisis. That's a stabilisation fund.
0: That's Stephen Oxley, Managing Director of the Institutional Relationship Group at PGM. What Stephen's referring to here is a stabilisation fund, one type of SWF, could also be called a rainy day fund. And what is COVID, if not a veritable downpour?
1: In several cases, they've been used quite heavily by governments to support them. There are several funds I know of that have become somewhat depleted, or at least reduced their level of assets because money has been spent, because they've been that rainy day fund. Well, I think you can call a global pandemic a rainy day or a rainy two years, as it's almost been. So it makes sense. Therefore, they've proved their worth, I would argue. They were there when they were needed.
0: In 2020, Norway drew a record $35 billion from its fund, more than four times its previous mark. The pandemic has also been a big moment for other types of SWF, development funds. Sovereign wealth funds in Africa that focus on local economies, for instance, began to emerge as COVID-stoked demand in a wide range of industries, from pharmaceuticals to farming. These COVID-era developments speak to yet another purpose of sovereign wealth funds. They can provide safety and capital for future generations.
1: These are funds where you're putting away wealth that you have now, knowing that your economy is stable, but looking to the future when perhaps the oil resource runs out or the other commodity resource runs out, making sure that you have stability in the future.
0: In other words, you need to have an investment strategy that takes into account what you imagine the future investment landscape will look like. And that includes factoring in the potential for big disruptions like COVID.
2: Very few funds would have anticipated COVID and the impact, for instance, on the aviation industry. Um, yet many of these funds are investors in airports and, and love that the potential returns, the fixed returns of that big piece of infrastructure.
0: That's Angela Kamine, a sovereign wealth expert and the author of the book Citizens Wealth. Angela says that for future generation funds to thrive going forward, there needs to be more sophisticated thinking around risks and worldwide disruptions.
2: Funds have to get better and better with those sorts of seismic shocks, really, to the, the financial system and, and manage for that. But also really build in uh, very sophisticated thinking around risk. So really trying to map what they think 10, 20 years out, which is consistent with most of their investment horizons, uh, they think that the risk landscape is, is going to look
0: like. The point is this. The term sovereign wealth fund is broad because the purposes of SWF are wide ranging. And each utility of SWF is relevant in the harsh light of COVID, causing investors to look even further into the future at what may be coming down the pike.
3: What I find interesting working with them as well is that they are very long-term in terms of their investment horizon, acting really as a stabilizer in a lot
0: of ways. That's Philip Sinn, a managing director of PGM's Institutional Relationship Group. In his role, Philip works closely with sovereign wealth funds and has watched them evolve during his tenure.
3: Because of their government-backed nature, they also have a bit of a social responsibility behind their investment activity. So I I find that also very uh, interesting because they do align very well, I think, with the values of, of myself.
0: Sovereign wealth funds and their values have completely transformed over time. But to understand why and how they're so important today, you should understand why and how they emerged in the first place. The term itself may be only 15 years old, but the origins of sovereign wealth funds go back centuries.
2: It's not a new idea. It's been around for uh, a very long time.
0: That's sovereign wealth expert Angela Kumain again. Angela traces the origins of SWF back to Napoleonic times. You know, the days of neoclassical paintings, the Battle of Waterloo, and treasury pillaging political leaders.
2: We think the the first of these funds was probably set up in France after Napoleon had raided the coffers in France. And there was a strong push to try and quarantine the, the assets of the state from rogue political leaders.
0: The idea then was to ensure that an overzealous leader, perhaps motivated by an inferiority complex, wouldn't recklessly squander the country's funds. That seems like a pretty good idea. The 19th century also saw the creation of what many cite as the world's first true sovereign wealth fund, hailing from a more unlikely locale, deep in the heart of Texas. The Texas Permanent School Fund was founded in 1854 to provide revenues for funding of public, primary and secondary education in the state.
2: Uh, It was given $2 million uh, that the state government of Texas had received at the time from the federal government in return for surrendering its claims to territory in what is now part of New Mexico, Colorado and Oklahoma. It was um, essentially settling territorial claims, but then uh, a very laudable outcome there in terms of a a ring-fenced, hypothecated fund to finance the school system in Texas.
0: Those ingenious Texans looked at their windfall and decided that it was prudent to think about the future. They were thinking about their children and their children's children. The Texas Permanent School Fund still exists today with an endowment of nearly $50 billion. So we have two early sovereign wealth funds, one from France's Napoleonic times, another from the state of Texas, neither having to do with oil. The idea that there was merit in not spending your windfall from natural resources all at once, that was the thinking behind the rise of what's regarded as the first modern sovereign wealth fund, the Kuwait Investment Authority. The KIA was founded in 1953 as a way to manage the funds of the Kuwait government after Kuwait became the largest producer of oil in the Gulf.
1: The idea was that the oil had been discovered. If all of that money went into the economy, the economy would overheat, and the money should be put aside for the future.
0: The Kuwait Investment Authority, like so many of the other SWF we've talked about, still exists today, with total assets nearing $700 billion. Controlled largely by the government, it's one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world, but not quite the biggest. The story of the biggest fund in the world began in the North Sea in the 1960s, but the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund wouldn't actually be established until three decades later. So in
2: 1996, we start to see the fund um, capitalized, and it was very conservative at first. It was just in um, equities um, and bonds, so not, not doing anything too sophisticated.
0: Norway began to separate itself and become a model for other sovereign wealth funds. For starters, there's a key difference between the Government Pension Fund of Norway and the majority of other oil funds which are strongly governed by the state.
1: Norges Bank Investment Management is separate from the government which created the fund and is able, within guidelines, to make its own decisions about the most sensible investment strategy. And that has resulted in a very large, global, diversified portfolio.
0: And Stephen says this independence of thought makes the fund unique.
1: It's not ploughing money as much back into its own economy. It's looking outside of the world. It's understanding that eventually Norway's oil resources are going to run out. This fund will be in a prime position to benefit. And increasingly now, while we're looking at environmental and social governance, which is, you know, the dominant theme in much of investment, developing a large global ESG portfolio.
0: Indeed, responsible investing has been front of mind in Norway longer than the term ESG has existed. In the early 2000s, there was outcry in the country when it was revealed that the government pension fund invested in cluster munitions, because at the same time, Norway was advocating to regulate those same explosive weapons. When the hypocrisy was pointed out, Norway's SWF started to pay greater attention to make sure their investing strategies lined up with Norwegian values. The fund made a commitment to responsible investing.
2: Norway is quite famous for divesting what they deem to be problematic investments. For instance, they've been very active in the cluster munitions space, in big tobacco.
0: That commitment continues today. Recently, the fund announced it was divesting from fossil fuels and companies that have the majority of returns from those sectors. And in recent years, other sovereign wealth funds have followed Norway's lead in ESG, including a region of the world you might not
1: expect. I think it's interesting um, to talk about the Middle East again, which is, you know, an example of an area where you might think sustainability is a word that they don't want to hear. It's interesting increasingly how you are hearing that. Several of these sovereign wealth funds are appointing heads of ESG or sustainable investments and really thinking about this. And one of the things that the PIF, the Public Investment Fund in Saudi Arabia, is doing is trying to develop alternative energy in in Saudi Arabia. So I think it will become more and more important. In
0: other words, Norway's fund is far from the only one embracing ESG today and the technologies of the future. Look to Asia, which has been at the centre of a significant shift in the world of sovereign wealth funds. Funds like the one in Asia aren't developed around abundant natural resources like oil. These aren't necessarily resource-rich countries, but they are big SWF players all the same.
3: In Asia, I think, you know, a lot of it did come from this rapid economic development that we've experienced here.
0: That's Philip Sin, head of PGM's Institutional Relationship Group. Based in Singapore, he's well aware of the growing number of influential funds coming out of Asia.
3: I think that the governments here have been quite prudent in not only preserving the wealth that's been created, directing it towards uh, future generation investing, but really helping to shepherd that growth in the economy that allows for this excess.
0: Many of the emerging Asian economies are now developing sovereign wealth funds that serve to offset a big problem, hot money. You can think of those sovereign wealth funds as stabilizers. They're like cold money, not quite frozen, but chilled.
3: One of the advantages of a sovereign wealth fund is this long-term horizon And specifically in Asia, where we talk again about the fact that there are not a lot of liability long term investors here in Asia. There's a real need to stabilize the market.
0: A key stabilizer in the Asian markets is China's CIC, created in 2007.
3: CIC has got something like $1.2 trillion in assets under management. You're looking now at the world's second largest economy. So I don't think there is a way that you can avoid the opportunities that are gonna be presenting themselves out of China.
0: Philip says that opportunities are emerging for investors all over the world.
3: I think that inbound demand from outside going into China is probably where a lot of the opportunity is gonna exist for managers like ourselves. We're really encouraged about the demand that we anticipate for Chinese standalone assets, you know, be it the equity bonds or even the private market sector. I think a lot of people um, are going to be looking to have these exposure.
0: Working a bit south of China, over in Singapore, Philip also has his finger on the pulse of GIC, the Government of Singapore Investment Corporation. Like China's CIC, GIC isn't a commodity-based type of fund. It's funded by excess reserves. And while it was founded back in 1981, it's one of the most forward-thinking, most sophisticated investors in the world. It's also the second biggest behind Norway's fund. GIC has become a juggernaut by staying one step ahead.
3: They actually have a futures unit. They're looking out and saying, what are things that are happening in 20 or 30 years that are going to be you know, significant in terms of the impact on the market and impact on the world? And how do we then ensure that we accommodate those types of trends in our portfolio?
0: Like Norway, Asian-based sovereign wealth funds have embraced ESG, but with what Philip calls a more, quote, pragmatic approach, one that he sees throughout Asia when it comes to ESG. He says it's an approach that's not about divesting, but engaging.
3: Instead of just saying, hey, let's just exclude certain things or let's adopt an index to exclude certain sectors, rather than doing exclusionary types of investing, they tend to be more engaging. They do it through engagement activities where they can make an influence at the companies uh, that they invest in.
0: Take, for example, their approach to fossil fuels. While Norway's sovereign wealth fund sold the last of its portfolio of oil and gas companies in late 2020, Asia-based funds have taken a different tack.
3: We think that renewable energy is obviously an area that we need to be in and we need to take seriously. But it's not going to be a, a switch that you can just turn off overnight. I mean, that's going to probably take a few decades to do that conversion. And more importantly, if you think about it, some of these large fossil fuel or, you know, historically fossil fuel companies are also leading the effort in renewable energy.
0: Philip believes that sovereign wealth funds can actually move the markets and change the framework of the way that people are talking about issues like climate change.
3: We're certainly seeing those areas of influence. Issuing of green bonds, for instance, and supporting those types of initiatives it's another area where they can make a big difference in terms of demand and
0: supply. Asia-based funds have been at the forefront of another trend with sovereign wealth funds. A move into private equity, venture capital, real estate, alternative investments. There are, of course, more risks when you move into alternative assets in large numbers. During the global financial crisis, many sovereign wealth funds took a big hit because of their exposure to alternative assets. But sovereign wealth investors are long-term investors. They're always thinking about the future and they're patient. And with their approach, the move to alternative investments is not as risky as people might think. That's what PGM Stephen Oxley believes.
1: Some of the larger sovereign wealth funds that I know and work with have made significant both private market investments and in some cases hedge fund investments. And it's because they understand that they are diversifying their portfolios and that they're getting different types of return stream from the more mainstream investments that they're making. There is little harm if you don't need the money in putting it in a private asset that's likely to have a higher yield than a public asset, and also provides diversification and return from different sources.
0: And this focus on alternative investments is happening because of something else, a factor that doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon, low interest rates.
1: One of the good reasons to invest in alternatives is the search for higher yields. And certainly the hope is in private equity, private credit, real estate strategies such as that, you can get a better yield than you can in that sort of core public market investment.
0: Sovereign wealth funds shift away from bonds and shares has accelerated as alternative investments continue to rise. Philip says that in terms of trends, funds are looking even further into the future. The most sophisticated funds are looking closely at climate and to other industries that are undergoing transformation.
3: I think the Singaporean sovereign wealth funds are are very much involved in this this whole area of data center and cloud and so forth. That's an area that is still going to continue to to grow, given the uh, pandemic situation that we're in today and the recognition that, you know, you need to have a lot more flexibility in accessing data. The self-driving cars is another area that we're looking forward to doing some work on as well. It's going to be interesting to see how the, the whole landscape is going to change. When I think about, for instance, you know how the job market is going to change when autonomous driving vehicles come in, what happens to the whole sector? And it goes beyond that, right? In the U.S., you've got these long-haul truck drivers. What, what's going to happen to them when things like autonomous driving comes in? The other areas are seeing a lot of work in terms of the technology behind healthcare, being able to target very specific illnesses. I think it's a very exciting uh, time to be right now.
0: Data centers, self driving cars, tech and healthcare. These are exciting opportunities.
1: It is interesting to see the immense growth there was in private and direct investing.
0: Stephen sees this trend towards private and direct investing as something that's not just about making money.
1: I think also those responsible for the sovereign wealth funds, and that includes some of the leaders of those countries, really like the idea of having stakes in some of the western and developed technology firms and they didn't have technology sectors in their own countries and there was an opportunity there for them to get in early on what has turned out to be and was thought to be then a great growth sector so they've become important shareholders of of, you know many well-known companies
0: and these examples aren't simply shiny trophy assets like say stake in Manchester City football team bought by the Mubadala Investment Company, a United Arab Emirates sovereign wealth fund.
1: There are other examples of investments in all of the emerging alternative energy and electric cars and growth in Asia as well from the Middle East. I think it's attractive on many levels because you're also, by investing in companies, you're getting a better understanding of how they operate, what those industries are, which may be as skills and knowledge you can transfer back to your own country. I think that's certainly true in, in Saudi Arabia, because a big investment in one of these firms gives you a place on the board, and certainly a lot of influence and knowledge.
0: The intellectual transfer component is a fascinating one, and yet another example of how sovereign wealth funds position themselves for the future in ways that aren't necessarily obvious at first glance. This is a future in which sovereign wealth funds not only present unexpected investment opportunities, Angela Kumain says they may come to be viewed not just as simply sovereign wealth funds, but as social wealth funds. Angela says the funds need to be social not only in terms of how they're generating returns, but also in the ends that they support.
2: A traditional response around these funds would be that at the end of the day, they're about generating financial returns, about wealth maximising. What a government chooses to do with that wealth is up to the government. But I would argue more strongly than that and say that ultimately they are as public assets distinct. There are a set of obligations that attach to to your assets when they are invested on behalf of a public. And one of those should be that they are promoting some sort of social objective or end for the community that set them up.
0: That could be making public finances more sustainable in the long term, ensuring security for aging populations as healthcare costs are increasing and pensions are becoming increasingly underfunded. Or, as those shrewd Texans did more than 150 years ago, setting up a fund to support education. A fund that's still supporting the education of future generations today. Philip Sin says the opportunities are endless.
3: You know, as a parent myself, I do worry about my children and their children. I think that's really how I would think of a sovereign wealth fund. It's just really having a responsibility for the population and ensuring that you do as much as you can to ensure a good future for them.
0: Indeed, it is at the end of the day all about ensuring that prosperous future. And when you look at it that way... Sovereign wealth funds are no different from any of the other financial tools we've talked about in this series. They're all about ensuring and making possible a future in which the tantalizing opportunities in front of us now can become reality. Thanks to PJM's Stephen Oxley and Philip Sin and Angela Kumain for talking with us. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM and Bloomberg Media Studios. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, Leave us a review.
4: This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of m PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2021. The PGM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.